Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast from Faith Point Church, Auckland, New Zealand. We hope you will encounter God afresh in this week's teaching segment. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, then you can visit us at www.faithpoint.org.nz. And now for today's message. How's everyone today? Good? Everyone smiling? You know, it's good to be back after a few weeks uh, in Malaysia. And uh, when I came back from Malaysia, you know, went back to work immediately, uh, I found that one of the things I forgot was my password. And I've been doing that for the past year, and I've forgotten about that. And not only that, there was this chap that I was working with, my, one of my colleagues, and I forgot his name. <laughs> <laughs> when things are getting on, at or is it an early sign of Alzheimer's? <laughs> anyway, there was, this, uh, uh, there was this man who uh, stopped his car in front of a, uh, waiting for the traffic lights to change. And he noticed that there was a traffic warden just in front of him. And he thought, well, it's about time, you know. With all these people just beating the red lights, well, I'm sure with the traffic warden there with the camera, will stop people were just um, getting through the red lights. So when the light changed green, he went, and as he went, he noticed the traffic button snapped a shot of him. He said, that's strange. I, I, the lights were green, and why did he take the snapshot? He was not very happy about that, so he decided to make a detour and came back, and as the light turned green, he went across, and again, the traffic warden took a snapshot of him. And he stopped right beside the traffic warden and said, what's going on? You've given me two traffic um, uh, infringements. The lights were green when I went past. Well, the traffic warden smiled and said, yep, true, the lights were green. But I snapped the shot because you were not wearing your seatbelts. Sometimes, actually, we are so easy to forget some of the things that we do. And this morning, I want to look at a, a Second Peter, where Peter reminds us of what kind of person ought we to be. What kind of person ought you to be? Just the last few verses, which where Peter very much summarizes what he's talking about, First Peter and Second Peter. Now, the first thing he says that, we ought, the, the kind of people we ought to be is, we ought to be diligent to live holy and godly lives. And it says that since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will meet in the earth, in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. You know, in this passage we have just read, Peter is talking here to the Christians that the Lord's coming is very near. And the Lord's coming should influence the way we think and the way how we live. 
Now, heaven should affect our activities, our ambitions, our recreations, our friendship, and wherever we are. Heaven should have a great influence on how we live and how we think. Notice what Peter says in verse 11. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? What kind of people ought you to be? You know, here Peter suggests that we can choose how to live. Now, we choose, uh, we, we choose to listen or not to listen to the advice given to us by parents, by our friends, uh, by our colleagues, or from uh, up the pulpit here. And often when the advice of others are given, we weight it, we determine it, uh, if it's cause of action uh, we want to take. Isn't that true? But often, you know, when we, especially with our kids, we tell our kids and the kids say, oh, whatever. I'll think about it and forget about it. You know, someone once said, one's philosophy is not best expressed in words. It is expressed in the choices one makes. In the long run, we will shape our lives and we shape ourselves. The process never ends until we die. And the choices we make are ultimately our responsibilities. What kind of people ought you to be? You know, from the minute we get up, we choose what we want to wear, what we want to eat. And every moment of the day, we are almost feeding on something. We choose what we want to feed our minds and our souls. We feed, uh, what we feed on will grow in our minds and our hearts. And that is what is going to flow out of our lives. You know, just as our bodies reflect what and how much we eat, our lives will reflect what we feed our mind, our spirit, and our soul. You know, there's an old American uh, Indian story of a chief who was telling a gathering of young braves about the struggle within their hearts. And he says that it's like two dogs fighting inside us. Two dogs fighting inside us, the chief told them. There is one new dog. He is the good dog and wants to do everything that's right. He's obedient and he longs to serve his master and gives attention to him. Then there's the other dog, the old dog, always wanting to do the wrong things. He's mean, he's vicious, he's untrainable, and downright just been destructive. Now these two dogs are always fighting. Sometimes the good dog seems stronger and he wins. But other times the bad dogs wins. It seems to be stronger. Now then a, a young brave asks, who's going to win in the end? Who's going to win in the end? And the chief answered, the one you feed the most. You know, the war that is inside uh, uh, seems to rage in our hearts. It's like having those two dogs uh, living inside us. The old dog wants very much to go on to the sinful ways. 
always wanting his own ways, untrainable, refused to obey, always finds trouble. And when turned loose, it will cause a path of destruction. The new dog describes our obedience to the Lord, longs to serve Christ and gives attention to Him. And the two dogs are just always fighting to get attention and wanting to have control over our lives. And the question this morning is, which dog are we feeding the most? Which life are you feeding the most? The new life or the old life? The generate life or the ungenerate life? Which life are you feeling most? You know, don't you find it so easy to, um, in a lifestyle that repeatedly follows the path of destruction? As what Paul says, the things I want to do, I do not do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And so often it is we are feeding the bad dog. Now, but Peter says, we ought to live holy and godly lives. Now, as you all know, holy means uh, different. It means set apart for God. Now, godly means that we are to mimic the character of God and to have, what you call it, to have his DNA, to put it. Now, so a holy person is not an odd person, but a different person. He has a quality about him that is different because he has got God's DNA in him. That's what makes him different. And it, as such, his present lifestyle is not only different from his past life, and is different from a lot of people or even the believers that's around him. Why? Because his DNA is different. Because he has got God's DNA. It's different. You know, I like the story about the pastor who was uh, building a wooden trellis and to support this uh, climbing uh, vine. And he's pounding away, he saw a little boy who was just watching him. The youngster didn't say a word, and uh, the pastor just kept on uh, working, thinking the lad might just leave. But this young lad didn't go away. He just sat there and watched. Now, finally, after he has finished, the pastor came and asked, Well, son, are you trying to pick up how to build a, a trellis or something about gardening? No, the boy replied. I'm just waiting to hear what the pastor says when he hits his thumb with a, with a hammer. You know, the world is watching us and is watching our every action. Does our action as we comes out, does it project we have that DNA, God's DNA that's in us? Have you got that? You know, this is a, what's this a Francis Bacon who says, it's not what men eat, but what they digest that makes them strong. Not what we preach or pray, but what we practice and believe that makes us Christians. What kind of people you ought to be? What kind of a DNA that's in us? God's DNA? Or is this still very much the DNA of the past life? You know, God will never force us to be holy. It must be a free choice out of love for God. And one of the biggest obstacles to, uh, to having this DNA is, uh, uh, is, is not the world, and it's not even the devil. It is us. We are the biggest obstacle to it. 
do we allow the DNA of God to manifest itself or not? So the first question that uh, Peter asks us, what kind of person you ought to be? It is, we ought to be the, the people to be diligent to live holy and godly lives. Now next, Peter um, tells us that we need to be confident in the word. And it says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother, Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Notice um, Peter's assessment of uh, Paul's writings. He said that these letters contain things that are hard to understand. Some of the things that Paul writes is just, you know, it, it just baffles us. No, when Peter wrote them, it is not so much a criticism of Paul's writings. Rather, it's just a statement of fact which we all can relate to. You know, the writings of Paul are not particularly easy to understand. Often, is it, what is he talking about? There is an, uh, what you call an intellectual depth in Paul's letter that challenges even the best of the theological minds. So we often find ourselves just at a loss and trying to come with grips in his writing. But then notice uh, the confidence that Peter has in the clarity of Scripture. Now clearly Peter feels that uh, though Paul's letters may be difficult to understand, but they are not impossible. It also to make sense. If people misunderstood the Bible, it has more to do with their ignorance and reading it through their own lenses. And we often choose not to understand Scripture because of our distorted views. We come to it with our own lenses. We come to it with our own views and our own opinions. You know, one of the things that when I went back to Malaysia, I got this pair of glasses, uh, well, because it was cost only a, less than a third of the price of what I get. And very much because it was getting very blurred and I was seeing a lot of things that were double and my vision was just not, not clear. And it just reminded me of this story of a lady was, uh, who, uh, and, um, a lady of high society. And he came to this art museum and he saw this painting and he said, uh, um, my dear fellow, uh, she said condescendingly to the curator, I, I don't know where to get it right, my dear fellow, he says, I've never seen this painting before. I find this image shallow and rather crude in appearance. What do you call this painting? The curator said, that painting is a picture of you. You're looking at a mirror. Yeah. You, you see, the lady's vision is not very focused. It is blurred. I think sometimes when we look at Scripture, we lose focus uh, on Jesus of Scripture. It blurs our views, not only Christ, but of ourselves as well. The Bible is a great mirror. We may go to it and observe its content with a critical eye, but in the end, we are under its criticism. And often, we do not like what he says. 
You know, another author, John Stott, says that we need to repent of the haughty way in which we sometimes stand in judgment upon Scripture. And we must learn to sit humbly under its judgment instead. We must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thoughts and behavior. And how often we come critical of what Scripture says instead of the other way around. The Scripture often gives us the, the mirror. The, when we look at Scripture, it's like looking in the mirror. Often the view is distorted. But sometimes we have a clear picture when we allow Scripture to speak to us. You know, Peter is clear that um, the Bible is intelligent to the regenerate and the honest mind. And he doesn't want us to lose confidence in that. Even though the things that we don't understand in Scripture do not lose confidence. You know how often you hear people say, you know, I find difficulty in bits of Bible I just don't understand and just get all worked up over it. You know, and then this, um, but I think the reply is uh, from Mark Twain. He says that, I find great difficulty in the bits of the Bible I do understand. Why did he say that? He said that it is because since I understand them, I've got to obey and to do them. At least the bits I don't understand, I can just leave them out. I think most of us know a lot about Scripture. Those are the bits that we should be doing at it instead of getting so worked up on state of those bits that we don't understand. You know, more information can be helpful, but it doesn't guarantee growth is going to take place. And you can't equate information with growth. You know, there's a big difference between information and application. You can know a lot about God and even have the verses of the Bible memorized, but without the heartfelt application, the truth is just hate knowledge, nothing at all. Information is helpful, but it's not everything. And I always remember one Bible um, lecturer used to say that, you know, one of the longest journey that man has to make is not from here to the moon or here to the mask. It's from your nut to your gut. That's one of the longest journey. It's not how much you know. It is how much you practice what you know. And we are told in the Bible that even some of the most theological people can be uh, always, not always the most uh, spiritually matured people. Look at the Magi who wanted to know the direction where Jesus was. The scribes, the teachers of the law could just point it out to them. And these teachers of the law, they have got all the information, but not the application of it. They have the head knowledge, but not the heart knowledge. They know about God, but they do not God, know God personally. These were the teachers of the laws. Without applications, we grow no closer to God than someone who has all the answers. You see, information alone can't save you. It can't help you along, may, may give you, help you along with some insights. But unless you apply it and internalize it, it's going nowhere. So growth is more than, just, uh, uh, more than just a learning exercise. It's a daily journey in the application of what we know. Have confidence in Scripture. 
Although parts of the scripture is difficult, by and large, the Bible is a clear book. A three-year-old may underst- will understand the story of John and the whale. And again, um, a PhD in theology may spend a lifetime trying to comprehend how God can become man. In the Bible, rewards us even if you have a few minutes of read- reading each day. Don't ignore that. Have confidence in the scripture. Do not be put off if there are things we do not understand. But more be, we should be more concerned with the things that we do understand. What kind of people ought you to be? We ought to be confident in the word of God. Be very confident in it. Now the third thing that uh, Peter wrote is uh, to be on guard for false teachers. He says, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Now, I think it's assumed that um, the church's greatest problem today is uh, trying to persuade people to believe, trying to uh, evangelize uh, the, those who are still outside the kingdom. But I beg to differ, that is not the case. It is not unbelief the church has to worry about so much as wrong belief. It is not the doubter, but the deceiver that we need to worry about. And that's the feature. The feature of our age is more of, uh, not so much of skepticism, but gullibility. You know, we live in a day when there are many sort of uh, insidious influences that are leading people astray. And it's almost certain that in every age, God's truth will be challenged by Satan's lies. So clever is this counterfeit that it will become as so easily absorbed into the church. And we just see it happening. And Satan will achieve a great measure of success. And Peter tells us in uh, the in earlier part of chapter 3 that many will just follow. Now, people today will just... Uh, believe almost anything, provided those who are in authority and those who are ex- expert, uh, say it with an air of confidence and they just drink it in. Now, false teachers in church are not new. But tragically, false teachers are even more active today than any other generations. Why? Because I think at each passing day, with all the things that's happening around us, a lot's coming very near. And we are told in the world that in such days, there will be lots of false teachers will be coming and worming their way into the church. And Peter says, be on guard for false teachers. Be on guard for false teachers. Why? Because they're just destructive. You know, false teachers can be uh, divided into a variety of uh, categories. Some advocate wrong beliefs, but godly ethics. Others advocate right beliefs, but ungodly ethics. Some uh, advocate both wrong beliefs and ungodly ethics. Whatever it is, whether they disguise themselves as the angel of light or just blatantly went um, forward about being false teachers, they are always a serious threat to the church. They are always a serious threat to us here in Faith Point. You know, that's why Peter says that make sure 
be on guard for them so that you won't fall from your secure position. Why? Because the message of the false teachers are just destructive. Do you know how Eskimos killed a wolf? How? Yeah. You see, actually what happens is he makes an ice cream. But it's no ordinary ice cream. What the Eskimo does is that he will coat his um, sharp knife with blood and let it freeze. And when that is frozen, he'll put another coat of, of, um, of uh, blood onto, that, uh, on, onto, the, the, onto the blade. And you coat many layers of frozen blood on the top of the blade. Then he'll bury the knife with the blade up in the frozen environment. And when the wolf catches the scent of this blood, he'll come and he start licking the blade. Now because of the cold, he'll never notice the cut of the blade and the pain on his tongue. And his craving for the thirst for blood is so great that he licks the blade till he bleeds to death, swallowing his own life literally. You know, false teachings often presented beautifully packed, enticing all our senses. And once we get hooked, it takes over us. And in that process, it bleeds our spiritual life dry and possibly kills. Now, when anything other than the Word of God is given supreme place or put on par with Scripture, and we base our life upon it, we are living a pack of lives. And when that misshapen uh, truth is taken as a guide for life, it's dangerous. And what can it do? But to mislead and possibly kills us spiritually. You know, that's why the Bible categorically says and to take a no-tolerance position regarding false teaching, particularly in the major and the clear areas. There's no tolerance regarding false teachings. You know, many people or believers are just too quick to believe a lie. Why? So that we can just uh, go ahead and live like they want. And they want some uh, excuse to get away from the restraints and the demands of what Jesus Christ puts on them, what the Bible demands of them. Therefore, they go after any teaching that lowers the, the, the person of Christ. The more he's lowered, the less binding his demands are. The religion of the false teachers are easy, are comfortable, and popular. And a person dooms himself to an eternal hell if he just follows this false teaching. False teachings are just destructive. That's why Peter says, be on guard. Be on guard for these false teachers or you will fall from your secure position. And he's reminding us today not to forget about that. Now finally, he says, be committed to spiritual growth. He says in verse um, 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both forever, both now and forever. Amen. 
Now notice that Peter says, grow in grace. And this is an area in which we are to grow. It deals with who we are and what we are like. Now, growing in grace is not achieved by keeping more rules because in Hebrews 13, it tells us that your heart should be strengthened by God's grace, not by obeying the rules. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. And the writer is trying to emphasize that grace, uh, that you emphasize grace before the law because rule-keeping alone does not please God. Merely keeping the law does not produce growth. Our hearts are strengthened and empowered by the grace. Nothing else. Yes, we need uh, rules and guidelines. Uh, they are helpful. But when the focus is on doing instead of being, then we, something is amiss. That's why you hear so often, we are human beings. We are not human doings. Human beings, not human doings. You know, Jesus called the, uh, the Pharisees uh, hypocrites for this reason. They looked good on the outside, but they were rotten inside. They were keeping all the rules, but that was just about it. There was no compassion, no mercy, no kindness. It just wasn't there. You know, they were good law keepers, but internally they were just uh, terrible people. You know, the righteous, their righteousness was de derived from law-keeping and maintaining a good appearance. But sadly, deep inside their hearts, they were far away from God. Far, far away from God. You know, growth in grace is not a rigid set of uh, lists of do's and don'ts. The Christian life is not about rules. It's about Jesus Christ. The Word is not a self-help book, but rather, let me glorify God with my life book. If you obey the rules, you don't have Jesus, you just miss the heart of it all. You know, we know often it tells us that the word grace means um, um, undeserved love and unmerited favor from God. As such, this word grace uh, reminds us that the resources whereby we undergo for growth is not our own, but from God. It's from Him. It's not from us. You know, way back, uh, Peter tells us that His divine power has given us everything we need pertaining living a godly life. And it means that. You know, as a consequence of this undeserved um, love and unmerited favor, our life, therefore, should show the effects of this grace. We should show deeds of sacrifices, deeds of uh, kindness, deeds of uh, generosity, deeds of love, deeds of excellence. But this is, will only happen when we continue to grow in a deeper consciousness of Christ's love and His grace. In other words, there should be a daily progression to be more Christ-like. And my, as I do that, my character will begin to be shaped, to be refined, to be softened, to be molded by His very grace. In the grace that we possess will then be reflected in our home life, in our working life, in our church life, in fact, in all areas of our life where when people see us, 
we radiate the grace of God because we have been living in His grace, the grace that He gives us. Now, next thing you notice that not only you need to grow in grace, but to grow in knowledge. And it says to grow in knowledge. Now, this word knowledge is a reminder that this growth is not talking something about the legalistic uh, rule book that we talked about earlier on. And he's not talking what the false teacher might uh, have suggested that he's acquiring some kind of uh, um, esoteric um, teaching or even experiences. Peter is talking here about the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not that when we are challenged to grow, it is not just in knowledge of the Bible as good as it is, but in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one thing to know the Bible and quite another thing to know the Son of God that's in the Bible. The better we know Christ to the Word, the more we will understand the Word of God. You know, the less, um, as we understand the Word of God more, then as the less mature Christian will ask, what can I learn to help me live more successfully? The mature and more, uh, the more mature Christian will ask, what can I learn to please God? The less mature Christian will ask in times of trouble, why me? A more mature Christian will ask, why not me? You know, it's so easy to grow in knowledge but not in grace. Now, all of us know far more of the Bible than we really live. You know, knowledge without grace is a terrible weapon and grace without knowledge can be very shallow. You see, knowledge alone can be very hard. It says the Bible tells you to do this and do that. On the other hand, grace will say that you need to be more tolerant. You need to have more love. But the thing is, we need both of them together. They need to go hand in hand. We cannot separate the two of them, grace and knowledge. For grace without knowledge will lead to heresy. And knowledge without grace leads to dogmatism. We need both of them to go hand in hand. You know, but when we combine grace and knowledge together, we have come across a marvelous tool for building stuff. We will be the person that, what the Bible intends us to be. A person full of grace and knowledge. You know, um, David Foster, the author of uh, Celebration of Discipline, wrote, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is the primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a great number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deeper people. You know, a principal of a high school had an administrative position to be filled, and he promoted one teacher who had about five years of experience. And when the announcement was made, another teacher in the school got really upset. And he asked, why do you put this teacher in position when he had only five years of experience? I've been working for this school and I have 25 years of experience and you bypassed me. And the principal looked at him and said, I'm sorry, but you are wrong. 
you haven't had 25 years of experience. You have one year's experience 25 times. How much have I grown last year? Or have I experienced in this past 25 years of my Christian life, one year's growth, 25 times over? You know, neglect to take growth seriously is the number one reason for our spiritual stagnation. That's the number one reason. That's why Peter finished off his saying, grow in grace in the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this morning, Peter is challenging and reminding us again, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, he tells us, we not ought to be living, be diligent to live holy and godly lives. He tells us to be confident in the word of God. He tells us to be on guard for false teachers. And he tells us to be committed to spiritual growth in grace and in knowledge. Amen. Let's pray.